going to relax. I'm, I got up really early. I might take a nap. Cool. That's, that's about it. All right. Well, why don't we get started, man? So welcome to Something to Do, a podcast devoted exclusively to discussion and devotion of two of our favorite bands, Husker Du and The Replacements. Each episode, we'll be nerding out about all aspects of two of the most influential bands in the pantheon of American rock acts. I'm Jude, and this is my co-host, Greg. How's it going, Jude? Good, man. Yeah, very. Complain. Yeah, I, I have to say the same here. Um, so today's episode is another interview. Um, this one is with Sal Canestra, a friend of mine I've known virtually for over a decade, probably. Um, and we sort of discussed how we actually did have a couple encounters, IRL, as they say, <laughs> in real life, for those not in the know. Um, and it was, uh, I think people are really going to enjoy it. Uh, it was super fun. Yeah. Uh, and just like with the Jeff Dean interview, it was like, we could have probably gone for, you know, three hours. Yeah. Um, this one, I think this one might be a little bit longer than our usual, but I, I people are going to enjoy it. There's a lot of, uh, talk on, on this one where we're, you know, with Jeff, we were talking about who's could do, um, with Sal, we were talking more about replacements and Paul Westerberg and, just like we asked Jeff, uh, Sal agreed to uh, come back. He says he has some cool Husker Du Bob Mould stories. So, um, and Grant Hart. Him, so we're we're looking forward to that. A little bit about Sal. Uh, he has played in bands. He's from Staten Island. He played in a band called Sleeper that uh, we talk about a little bit at the beginning of the interview. Um, and he played in a band called The Gerens with Peter Cortner of Dag Nasty. And now he currently is doing um, stuff under his own name. Uh, and it's actually produced by uh, Pete Donnelly of the band The Figs. There's a connection to Tommy Stinson there. Tommy Stinson's a huge Figs fan and has actually, you know, Sal's played shows with, uh, you know, some Tommy being there. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, pretty, pretty cool. Um, so... Uh, I'm going to turn it over to you, Jude. First, yeah. uh, we'll call this. I decided I, I didn't. I did this without your okay um, consent. Without <laughs> your without your consent, so we might edit it out. We are going to officially dub this beginning section of the podcast "What's New?" N U with an umlaut. I love it. I love um, it. <laughs> so going forward, that is going to be this section. This is what's new. Cool. Cool. Yeah. So I um, just want to, as always, thank everybody for listening, following along, engaging on our social media accounts. Just a friendly reminder, we're on iTunes and we're on Spotify at this point and other podcast streaming services. So please feel free to like and subscribe. Feel free to offer a rating of the podcast. We are just thrilled that folks are listening and enjoying. Yeah. It supposedly, it supposedly helps if you subscribe and rate and even write a little review. We had a nice review uh, we got our first review on yeah. iTunes. I was pretty, uh, pretty excited about that. I, I showed Jude this morning, you know, big news for us. Um, Jay only 12, which we, we, we believe is Jerry only from the Misfits. <laughs> we hope. And um, so we really, you know, we know Jerry only has been busy <laughs> lately, but we're glad that he took some time out to uh, write us a review. So thank you, Jerry. Yeah. Um, so what's new? I guess I'll first start with like the adjacent stuff, kind of calling back to previous well, episodes. 
some really big news, Greg. You've got a new podcast. I do. Yeah. Um, and it's not just a new one. It's a very, very awesome one. That if thank you, you, as a listener of this podcast, are not already listening to Greg's other podcast, which I'll let you talk about, you absolutely should. It's called Where It Went, and it is a album-by-album album dissection, right, of the Rev catalog. Thank you. Yeah. So I realized how much fun that I have doing this podcast, and I figured, well, I want to have more fun, so I should do another podcast. So my friend uh, Javier Van Huss and I are doing a podcast called Where It Went, and um, it we have currently had uh, two episodes published, um, and we're going through the Revelation Records catalog. For people that have listened to us know that we both came from the hardcore scene, Jude and I, so that's a big part of my musical DNA. So to go through this catalog has been an absolute blast, and it's a lot of fun. People seem to be into it. We got some cool stuff lined up interview-wise, and uh, check it out if that's your thing. So speaking of that, we kind of joke that we somehow managed to mention Sick of It All on every episode, or like at least like half of our episodes. <laughs> so, uh, They're a great band. They are. I freaking love them. Yeah. Um, they just recently published a book. Um, it was actually written by Luke Kohler and his brother, Pete, who plays guitar, um, and Luke Kohler is the singer. And it is called The the Blood and the Sweat, The Story of Sick of It All, uh, as told by the Kohler brothers. I just finished it. It's a quick, really good read. So if you're a fan of Sick of It All, which you should be, um, and they did cover Husker Du, so it's all connected, mm -hmm. get that book and read it. So on to actual topical, more topical news one thing I don't think, Jude, did we ever mention the Record Store Day releases? I don't I think don't, so. I don't think so either. So as everyone knows, due to the, you know, the current situation in, in the country and you know, also the world, Record Store Day got moved from April to then June to now they're doing it in three drops. And for fans of this podcast, we are in luck. This Jude, this is going to be a heck yeah. of a couple weeks of like re releases here yeah. for for us that we are going to all these releases mentioned will be discussed we are going to try to schedule it so that the episodes happen around the time of the release so it's fresh and we can get a fresh perspective so the drops are at the end of august the end of september and the end of october so the first drop in august there's nothing related to who's could do or the replacements but the second drop, September 26th, the replacements are issuing a triple LP version of Inconserated, uh, which was released originally on CD with the box set Dead Man's Pop last year. And that's, again, September 26th, limited to 8,500 copies. I will definitely be securing one as long as I am able to find one. Um, and then Bob Mould is releasing, uh, he, he had released around the time of Body of Song, uh, Circle of Friends as a uh, DVD, I believe. Well, now it's going to be on vinyl, the audio, a double LP. That drops October 24th, and that is limited only to 2,000. So that one might be trickier to yeah. get. Um, 
and oh jude and then there's bob mold uh we talked about his new song yeah uh, you know he has two new songs out from the album that comes out september 25th so um that is the friday before uh the record store day replacements uh you know which comes out the 26th so you get the new bob one day the replacements the next and Greg, uh, on October 9th, right, there's a replacements box set coming up. Did you want to say something about that as well? Definitely. And we, we talk about it a little bit more in the interview with Sal, but yeah. um, they are issuing a super deluxe version of um, Pleased to Meet Me, Rhino is. Lots of cool stuff. There's like a limited cassette with an unreleased Paul Westerberg interview. There's demo tracks. There's some unheard tracks. Um, it comes with like a placemat and a yeah, all hat kinds of crazy and a t-shirt. Sweat. Yeah, it's it's cool. We'll definitely do um, you know an episode on that too when it comes out. Um, we'll probably break stuff up, like I said, like Incarcerated um, will be its own episode, even though that's part of Dead Man's Pop because I want to do a Dead Man's Pop episode and I want to do uh, for disc one of you know the remixes, but I also want to do one for the disc two, but we like to keep these in the hour range. So we'll split them up. So without, you know, I don't want to talk too much longer and I know Jude doesn't either because we really want you to hear this interview with our friend, Sal. So without further ado, let's get into it. Okay. Yeah. That's like my, um, my father's side of the family, they were originally all from Staten Island. Really? Yeah. Oh, Staten Island. Like from Staten Island? Like, yeah, like lived there for a long time. Oh, and then, yeah. No, my parents were part of a group that they called it the Guinea Gangplank when they built the Veranzano Bridge in the middle of the 60s. All these people from, uh, from like Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, and Bensonhurst, they all wanted uh, driveways and backyards. So they all went over to Staten Island. Yeah, like, I don't know if I've – did we ever play Staten Island? I don't think so. Probably not. There weren't a heck of a lot of venues. I mean, I, there, were, there was stuff going on when I was playing in bands when I was in college and things like that. But, you know, I don't know. We, we could talk about that whole the, – the Serpico uh, sleeper – well, emo, that's emo scene. <laughs> that, that, that was going to be – that was going to be my next – that I was, was very tangentially uh, connected to, you know, I was, I was in Serpico before they were Serpico. I was in Sleeper. Yeah. That's what I mentioned on at the end of the last, I was like, yeah. well, he was in Sleeper who turned their, who changed their name to Serpico. And I know there's I, that. Yeah. So I, I was out of the band before they sold their name. So I did not get any of the, uh, the the money involved in that which was fine and didn't you, know, you say I, that that was I, on yeah i'm sorry oh that netflix special right like yes if you, oh wow there's a netflix uh what's the comedian's name todd barry did a special on netflix called i think like road work or something like that where the whole special is just him interviewing people in the audience at his shows and the first five minutes of that special was him playing in San Diego and our drummer TJ the guy responsible actually coincidentally for this Westerberg stuff here uh, one of my best friends anyway Todd Barry goes you look like a drummer or you look like a musician and they get into this whole thing and TJ tells the story 
of Sleeper selling their name to, I want to say BMG Records, because there was a Britpop band called Sleeper. And, uh, you know, getting something like, I don't know, $200,000 or something like that. Whoa. Yeah, I mean, that poor band, there's no way they even made back whatever money. Oh. <laughs> they, they never sold a record in the United States. Um, maybe they had, were slightly popular in England. But yeah, they, they got some ridiculous amount of money because John Lisa was smart enough to contact someone and say, yeah, we've put out like five records under that name Sleeper. You can't use that uh, in the United States. Or he might have even said, you can't use it in New York City. Or whatever it was, you know, he didn't have it copyrighted. Um, but it scared them enough that they said, okay, how much money do you want? And they got a lawyer and yeah, they got something like that. It's such a cool, it's such a cool story. And like you mentioned John Lisa and it's funny that like so far we're two for two now for uh, people being interviewed that I met through the Dag Nasty message board. Like a lot of our conversations, even on the past podcast, we've kind of circled back to Dag Nasty, whether it be, you know, Dave Smalley with. Yeah, that's right. I I was, I was in a band that did a single with Dave uh, called Rule of Thumb. And, uh, and you're right. And I wound up on that dag board just because I hadn't seen John Lisa in years. And someone told me, oh, he's on this message board online. Uh, so I just wanted to reconnect with him. <laughs> and, you know, 15 years later, you know, I'm still on there. Me yeah. and eight other people. <laughs> yeah, right. It's, it's, uh, it's definitely, it definitely passes my time at work. It's one of the only, like, forums that's, not blocked from my job so uh, that like is yeah, a big right. like, I, I, can't, I can't access my gmail from my work but i can't access yeah my so, so it's like the one like beacon of light during my work day is like going on there refreshing oh that yeah i was gonna say for you know the amount of stuff that goes on there which is next to nothing you know at this point um, but i remember having a conversation with uh with matt page who's you know the moderator and he's like, you know, I'm okay with it. I'm like, are you sure? Because like literally sometimes there's like, you know, 10 posts a week, you know. <laughs> it's like, no, it, it, it is what it is at this point. And it, it's okay, you know. Everyone is fine with it. I'm like, are you going to shut this thing down? He's like, no, 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 don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, shout out to Matt Page too. Yes, um, yes, cheers to Matt. But, and it's, and the, you know, the running joke is that like we don't talk about Dag Nasty almost ever. Yeah, and I, in the past week, I actually brought up a Dag Nasty question, and I was so pleasantly surprised that it got some, some traction. Play. Yeah, yeah, it was, it definitely got some traction, so. I'll give you a little ridiculous background on that, Greg. Um, Mac from Superchunk posted his ticket stub from a Sam Haynes show that he went to in, like, 1986 when he went to college in New York, and he said something like, I think Dag Nasty played this show. And I said, yeah, I think they did too. Was that one of the shows that Dave Smalley sang outside of New York City? And, and that led to me asking the board, because I was like, well, somebody on the Dag Nasty board must know, right? <laughs> we found out that we know a lot less about Dag Nasty than we think we do on the Dag Nasty message board. Nobody could say, well, how many, sh- when did Dave quit? You know, when did Peter start singing? You know, uh, Peter's chiming in through a third party because he doesn't want to. Through Hunter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And like, um, well, speaking of, of Peter, uh, yeah. you also played in the Jarens. Uh, yeah, I was, I was in a band with Peter Cortner for, I think we scraped out three years or so of, of gigs. Uh, we only ever recorded a demo. Um, but for the most part, it was a lot of fun. It was a weird experience because I, I didn't write any songs. You know, none of us did. We just took these songs that he had written with this guy, Hunter Bennett, um, online and just decided to try to make it a real band. And uh, it was a lot of fun. Peter is one of the most creative people I've ever met. Once I got over being kind of a, a fanboy, you know, who's now in a band with a guy who he, you know, you know, idolize is a strong word, but you know, somebody I, you know, I've seen on stage so many right. times, yeah. and, uh, you know, and, and hadn't really, you know, they weren't that type of band in terms of, like, I, you know, they weren't hanging out with people before the show, as far as I knew, you know, back then, you know, um, they were sort of, you know, semi-major but not major you know right giant by the time i you know was seeing them uh so yeah that was that was a lot of a lot of because you mentioned hunter mm -hmm. and then you know it all comes full circle because um the uh hunter played in a band with jim spellman right and yes. uh jim spellman actually reached out so shout out to jim spellman and uh, we're going to have him on sometime too. Oh, that's awesome. Um, he's yeah. been super cool. And like he uh, showed that picture I shared of him and Bob Stinson. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, having said all that, how did you first, like, how did you first come across the replacements? Were you already into punk rock at that point and underground stuff or? Uh, not really, or at least what you're thinking of, or at least what I think you're thinking of. Um, I came in and I've talked about this a little bit on the, on the day board. Like I, I came to punk rock through classic rock stuff. I'm a little bit older than you guys. I'll be 52 in a couple of weeks. Um, you know, and I was, you know, I was a music obsessive. Um, and you know, what we didn't call it classic rock in 1982. It was just rock music um or aor i guess you know uh and you know i was a huge who fan and the kinks and neil young and crazy horse awesome and my, and my way into this stuff was like from that maybe i heard elvis costello and maybe i heard robin hitchcock and the egyptians through that stuff and then came into things like the replacements and the descendants, and then came around to bands like Dag Nasty, et cetera, et cetera. So that's sort of my way into it, as opposed to I know a lot of guys who are like into the hardcore uh, via either skateboarding or whatever it was, and uh, and then found these bands. So, but um, I mean specifically the replacements, like how did I first know about them, that type of thing? Yeah, like, sure, yeah. and and was it like an instant? Because we talked about for us, like, for me, I didn't hear them. I didn't. I heard them in passing, but I didn't actively listen to them uh -huh. until I was an adult in my mid to late twenties, and it was immediate connection for me. Yeah, and I'm just curious if it was like that for you, or if it was like a slow burn. 
no, no, no. It was it was immediate. And um, so I, I I did a little research to actually find the specifics um, because I remember it very specifically. Um, before I ever heard the replacements, I read about them. I was a junior in high school. I read every rock magazine that was available. I mean, that's where I heard, you know, about music, even more than hearing on the radio. There was no internet. Um, and I had subscriptions to Circus, which was more like metal stuff, and, uh, and Cream Magazine, which was still pretty interesting in the 80s. Um, and, and Rolling Stone, you know, which was the big, you know, the Bible of sorts. And everybody knew it was mainstream commercial stuff, but it came out every two weeks back then. In fact, I think only up until recently it stopped it. And I had a subscription and I took a look online to find out which issue it was. And it was February 14th, Valentine's Day uh, of 1985. That's awesome. And that particular review section, you guys should know and find this of, of interest. So that review section had a review of Zen Arcade. And it had, so it was a combo review. It was Zen Arcade and Double Nickels on the Dime. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, I remember David, that one. I mean, I by, wasn't there. By, but I reviewed by David. <laughs> and, but there was also a review of Let It Be. And Let It Be, I think, may have actually been like, you know, the, the star review, like the big review for that particular issue. And I read that review and immediately thought, like, I need to hear these guys. I have to find this record. Uh, so I read the review online recently. I wish I had written down the, it was a woman who wrote it. I did not write down her name. It wasn't somebody familiar. But I read it to say, well, what, you know, what did I read that made me want, you know, what was I, it was 17, I guess, at the time, or 16, actually, I guess I was 16. What made me want to search this record out? And the sentence I found was, uh, you know, in an age when most rock records are studied and wimpy, uh, this rugged album feels truly fresh. And I can imagine that that's what really spoke to me. Uh, because when I think about new bands that I knew about in 1984, 1985, there wasn't a lot that kind of filled that love. You know, like I said, I, I loved The Who and I loved the Kinks, uh, and then subsequently The Clash and The Ramones at that point, you know, Too Tough to Die was a big record for me in high school. But when it came to new bands, they sort of fell into, or, you know, guitar bands, kind of two categories, which were like jangly, shiny, uh, birds-influenced guitar bands, like say, like R.E.M. would have been the big one at that yeah. time. And, you know, I really liked a lot of that stuff, but it wasn't, you know, what really hit me in my heart. And on the other side, there were, you know, bands like U2 and Big Country, uh, which I liked too, but, you know, a very different guitar sound, heavily processed with lots of effects. And, you know, I liked a lot of that stuff. I actually, you know, Big Country was a bigger thing for me than even U2 at the time, but it wasn't that really kind of gritty, crunchy, you know, Les Paul into a Marshall um, with a lot of hooks and melody around it, which was the stuff that I love. Uh, and so I read this review of this replacements record and I said, you know, this sounds like something that I would really like. 
And sure enough, a few weeks later, I went to the Staten Island Mall, and I did not go to a cool, hip, you know, indie <laughs> record store. We, we, we did have one on Staten Island. I probably didn't discover it until a year or two later. But I went to Sam Goody. You guys know what Goody. Sam Goody is. Yeah. Yeah, Sam Goody was the big chain store in the United States, and they had a copy of Let It Be. And I was really excited, and I bought it, and I took it home. Were you a vinyl guy or, or cassettes? No, I was, I was vinyl. I did not. It's funny. I, I think about the cassettes I owned and they were usually records by bands that I liked, but records that I heard were not very good. So I'd spend a little less money. Like I, I love Paul McCartney and Wings, but I'd read like, oh, Wildlife. Yeah, Wildlife is not a very good record, but I needed to complete my collection. So I'd buy that on cassette. Gotcha. Um, By the way, it was um, it was the writer was Debbie, with a Y Miller. I, oh, I looked okay. it up. Debbie, yeah, Debbie Miller. Miller. Thank you, Debbie. Yeah, when you um, when you had that, they said the one line like from the review. They're like when most rock bands are like studied and. Uh, I she said yeah. and I was like, wow, Wimpy, yeah, that's definitely a word that would have been on my mind as a yeah. old rock guy. Like I don't I don't like wimpy rock music. I like you know tough rock music. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I love R.E.M., but like I when you read that, I was like, whoa, are they like throwing shade at R.E.M. there? What's going on? <laughs> yeah, and then they still mention, I'm looking at it now, they do mention, you know, Peter Buck being on the record. Sure. But yeah. now when I'm thinking about it in context, like, yeah, like this, for especially for what was mainstream, mm-hmm. this was not, nothing was like like them, and speaking especially specifically of them and Husker Du, stuff right. wasn't like that with the, like, yeah, still when like I, heavy I guitars, but melody. Like, yeah, I mean, REM at this point was still, you know, they were a couple of years away from Document. You know, they weren't like a, a big band. And yeah. like I said, I like them a lot. You know, it's funny. My sister and I are close in age and have very similar tastes. But like REM was kind of like her thing, you know, and I, I liked it. And I, but I'd borrow her REM record. You know, like I didn't buy the REM records, you know. Yeah, and the replacement. So, I, you know, I got Let It Be and I went home and I did something that I very rarely ever did, which was I listened to the whole record through and then I flipped it back to side one and played it through again. And some people are like, well, yeah, with records I like, I did that all the time. It was not something that I did. Like to today, I'm not a binge person. Even if I love a movie, or a, a record, you know, I want to listen to it and absorb it and think about it. And maybe I'll come back to it at some future date. With movies, it could be years. Like my favorite movies, I've maybe seen six times. Like I just don't obsess on things like that. But right. I wanted to listen to Let It Be again immediately after I was done listening to it. And I remember that distinctly, being 16 years old and playing playing it quieter then I played most of my records in my house, in my parents' house, you know, like it was still a little strange to me. You know, I remember immediately responding to it, but we're coming out was a little too much for me. Like, like, whoa, what is this? You know, like a feeling I felt much stronger when I listened to New Day Rising a couple months later. Right. Now, I like yeah. this, but this is really kind of like, I don't want to call it scary, but like, you know, it was, it was unusual to me. And like everything, it takes a while to get used to, to new stuff, you know? Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I, I totally remember having that feeling and you'll la- you'll laugh especially, but like when I f- first got Nevermind, I was oh. like, I like this, but this is like, not like anything like my parents 
were, were playing or whatever. Yeah. Like I remembered trying to justify in my head. I'm like, well, I guess it's kind of like Led Zeppelin. Even as a, I was 10 when I heard it. And I was like, well, they're quiet during the verse parts and loud during the chorus. Like that's like, you know, kind of like Led Zeppelin or whatever. Uh-huh. But like I completely can identify with that feeling. It's new and it's sort of scary, but like yeah. that's what makes you want to listen even more. Because yeah. Like, and, and, you know, and I have distinct memories, like a line of like the first time I heard The Who, I believe it was the Kids Are All Right soundtrack. And there's a live version of Won't Get Fooled Again on that record. That's a really noisy, like clangy, abrasive version of the song. And again, I guess I was 10 when I heard that. And like, that was another record where like I turned the volume down a little bit. I was a little bit fearful of my parents hearing it and being like, what are you listening to? You know, type of thing. What's uh, happened to our sweet boy? <laughs> <laughs> right, you, you were listening to Wings Greatest Hits just two weeks ago, and now you're listening to this noisy <laughs> stuff. Uh, and, I, and I had that with uh, We're Coming Out on Let It Be. Um, but, you know, I immediately connected with the record. And yeah, they became, right then, it wasn't a slow burn. They became, like, my favorite band. And it's always been a toss-up between them and the Who. You know, I I've got a Pete Townsend tattoo. I don't have a Westerberg one, but you got to get one now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But like, um, did you then? So me, mm-hmm. and now it's different with in the digital age. Although, like you know, I buy vinyl. With vinyl, sometimes it's tougher because some stuff gets out of print when you get into something new and you go back. Now at that point, 1985. Mm-hmm. that stuff was readily available. Did you immediately go out and be like, okay, I got to get Hootenanny? Oh, I yeah, get so, it. right, yeah. So I immediately got all the earlier records. And, you know, I mean, Tim wasn't that far off. Tim came out in the fall of 85, I guess. Yeah, I think um, um, October. So, and that was, right, the first new replacements record I got. But, yeah, it was. I think the first one I got on CD was, was Don't Tell a Soul. I think by 1989, it was difficult to find vinyl, you know, uh, but Pleased to Meet Me in 87 definitely was vinyl. And it, well, we're not, we're not, well, it's not being filmed for posterity. I can show you my autograph, Pleased to Meet Me. You'll um, have to po- uh, we'll have to post it on the, uh, yeah. on the page. Yes, I will take a picture and send it to you. It's uh, there's a very convoluted story behind Westerberg's kind of snarky signature on my record. I would love uh, to hear it. Uh, I would expect nothing less, really. Should I, should I tell it right now while it's Yeah, go for it. Okay. So they did an in-store at the Tower Records in Greenwich Village when Pleased to Meet Me came out. Um, they did two shows in New York. They did, they did a club show at the Ritz, which was like their regular venue in New York. Uh, and then they, they also played the Beacon Theater for the first time. And that was definitely a weird thing for them. It's the equivalent of the tower. Okay. It's, it's New York's version of, of the tower. Okay. Uh, and it was definitely strange for them to play there. And I, and I went to both of the shows. They did this in store and I was there with all my friends and we had our copies of Please Meet Me to sign. My sister actually got them to sign her denim jacket which, you know, she says she's going to send me a picture of the sleeves. She doesn't have the jacket anymore, but she has the sleeves that they autographed. That's awesome. uh, so anyway, I was very nervous. I didn't know what to say. Westerberg was the first one there. And my friends and I had this 
silly obsession with this Butthole Surfers live video at the time. They had a VHS of them, and um, there's interview segments, and Gibby Haynes would just say, hi, I'm Gibby, with this ridiculous, you know, Texas drawl of his. And so we would just yell this at each other when, you know, nothing else was going on. Someone would yell out, hi, I'm Gibby. And I swear <laughs> to God, I got to the front of the line, and I give my record to Paul Westerberg, and I say, hi, I'm Gibby, would you sign my record, please? <laughs> I, I deeply regret it to this day. And he took my record and he signs it and they pass it down the line. And then I look at it at the end and he wrote on my record, no Tex asshole. So he combined Texas and asshole into one word, oh. wrote no Tex asshole. <laughs> What's the perk? Man. On my record. That is so perfect. Like, okay, so every time somebody looks at it, they're like, what the? I'm, and I have to explain this ridiculous story as to why he wrote text asshole on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> so you, I know you said you saw them at those two shows. When was your first show? Didn't you see oh, them with Bob once, right? I did not see them with Bob. Oh, you didn't? No. Okay. It's a, it's a deep regret. So on an earlier episode, you guys talk about the two shows that they did at the Ritz, the famous show where Paul stage dove and no one caught him. Yes. And he broke his finger or whatever happened. Somebody stepped on his finger. I was supposed to go to that show, but I was a few weeks shy of 18, which was the age to get into the Ritz at the time. And I had a friend who was just on the other side, who was just a few weeks, 18. And I pleaded with him to go to the show. Um, because we were Staten Island guys and nobody took the subway, you know, this was in Manhattan. So we, we drove everywhere and I couldn't drive to Manhattan. It's like, please, let's go to the show. And he's like, I'm not going to drive to Manhattan. And some bouncer is going to look at your driver's license and say, no, you can't come in. I'm like, I'm three weeks away from turning 18. There's no way they're not going to let me go to the show. And he's like, no, nah, I'm not hauling my ass into Manhattan for that, you know? And that would have been the show. Oh, oh man. man. Which, you know, wasn't a great show. I mean, it, now it would be a good story to tell, but, you know, unfortunately, you know, that was my, you know, that's my basic take on the replacements live. You know, I got to see them a dozen times between 87 and 91, which is awesome to see yeah. them not from New York. I got to see them 12 times in four yeah, they played a lot. Like well, I, yeah, I was they, looking. They played a lot, and 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 some unusual ones I could I could talk about. But I'd say only one of them was a great show. Okay. <laughs> you know. Uh, Which you one? Know, um, so, so they did those two shows at the beginning of '86. Like I said, they did the club show at the Ritz, their normal venue, and they were good. And it was very, you know, like it was solid and it was a pro show. And there's a really good soundboard of it out there. into replacements bootleg, which I'm really disappointed is not going to be part of the Please to Meet Me box. Because yeah, we want to talk about that. that. We'll talk about that in a little bit. I, okay. I wanted to, sure. you'll be the first person since it's been gotcha. uh, announced. So we figured. Uh, and, and the show with the, the Beacon was fun. It was a drunk show, but it wasn't a terribly drunk show like i mean they managed to play songs um and it was the, i think that was the first night and you know seeing them for the first time it was amazing and 
you know, they did this bit where like the show just sort of dribbled to an end and everybody was walking out and then they came back on as basically everyone's in the lobby of the theater, like leaving, they came back on <laughs> another song. We all ran back in. So that was fun, but it wasn't great. Uh, they came back in the fall of 87 and played the Beacon Theater again, I think in November. And that show was the one great replacement show. I remember they came out in matching like garage mechanic overalls and they had the, the backdrop lifted. So all you saw was the brick wall at the back of the theater. Like it was very like, and they just had white lights on and that's how my memory is. And they just played a really raucous, great show. And that's really the only great replacement show that I got to see. You know, I saw some good ones, you know, I saw them on, uh, uh, when Don't Tell a Soul came out, they just played The Beacon. They did two nights. Uh, Johnny Thunders opened up both nights. It was Whoa. kind of a special thing for them. Oh, wow. Um, with this kind of all-girl Asian band. He was, like, trying out this, like, lounge singer type of thing. I'm like, he wasn't, you know, wasn't that exciting, but it was Johnny Thunders with a big pompadour and, like, I remember, like, a smoking jacket. Yeah. It was almost like he was trying to look like Buster Poindexter, which I thought was kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, and they, you know, and they were good shows. You guys are both obviously intimately knowledgeable with Trouble Boys. Right? Yes. So Bob Mayer tells the story in there of at one of the Beacon shows, Chris Mars and uh, Tommy getting into a fight, and Mars chucking the drumstick. At Tommy. Well, that drumstick hit me in the elbow. Whoa. Nice. I mean, as long as you're doing well, permanent yeah, yeah. damage. No, and, and <laughs> you're that, like, and now every time I go to rake the yard, I. <laughs> <laughs> and I will tell you, in preparation for this call, I tore my house apart looking for it because I carried that thing around for probably 25 years. And in one of my moves, it did not make it. Oh, man. I no longer have that drumstick. Um, you know, I also had beer cans that they threw out their dressing room window at that first beacon show, along with, like, you know, I did not save the cold cuts. They threw an entire tray of cold cuts out onto Seventh <laughs> Street. Um, but I did have a Heineken can that they threw out the window for years. Did you see um, them with uh, Tom Pet when they toured with Tom Petty? Yeah. So I saw two shows when they opened for Tom Petty. And it was funny because, if I can back up, that was in 89. But in December of 88, out of the blue, they announced um, that the replacements were gonna open up for Keith Richards at um, what was called the Brendan Byrne Arena at the time, that arena out in the Meadowlands. I don't know what it's called now. Um, and I was so excited and so weirded out by the idea of the replacements playing an arena. It's like, oh my God, we have to go to this. And a friend and I actually scalped tickets, you know, again, pre-internet, like yeah. one of those ticket brokers in the back of the village voice who'd have an ad, you know, and call the guy up and he's like, yeah, 50 bucks, I'll get you on the floor. Meet me at, you know, 14th Street and 2nd Avenue with $100, you know. Um, so we scalped tickets to see the replacements open up for, for Keith Richards. Um, and it was the only, I think it was one of only two shows they played in 1988. So that was kind of cool. 
Yeah, they talk uh, about that in the in the book too. I, I, that's so awesome that you went. Yeah. I, yeah, and you know, and what I remember of that was, I, I I recorded it. I think there's other bootlegs out there, but I definitely recorded it. And um, they did a couple of songs that would wind up being on "Don't Tell a Soul." They did "Asking Me Lies," which I remember liking a lot at the time, and they did "I Won't." And then. There was a moment where Westerberg started singing and playing Happy Birthday for Keith Richards. And when he got to the last Happy Birthday too, and instead of saying you, he went right into the chords for Unsatisfied. And awesome. they, they immediately started playing Unsatisfied. Oh, um, wow. Which is not a, frankly, it's not a favorite replacement song of mine, but it was like, I just remember that distinctly. It was really, it was nice. It was like, wow, okay, you know. And that sort of was always like they uh, they said, I remember reading people say that was almost like a that song sort of mm-hmm. was a little like their version of satisfaction, right? I, by, uh, by the Stones. I, I, like, I'm certain yeah. that he had satisfaction in mind when he when he named the song Unsatisfied. Yeah, so uh, that's that's yeah. awesome. Like yeah. So, so we're gonna so and, we'll, we'll, and then but meanwhile, not knowing that six months later I'd be able to see them in an arena you know, ostensibly whenever I wanted to as they were opening up the competition on that tour. I went to two of the shows. One was at the Garden State Art Center in Holmdale, New Jersey. Again, I don't know what they call it now. Yeah. Uh, and the only thing I remember about that show, which was very funny, is that, I mean, have you guys ever hauled your butts to see a band at the Garden State Art Center in Holmdale? <laughs> classic rock band that would be on your radar. So one of the things they do, and I believe they still do this to, the, to this day, is that they play the national anthem over the PA before any music starts. So they play the national anthem right before the, and you see the replacements on the side of the stage waiting to come out. And the second it's over, Tommy Stinson runs out and screams into the microphone, play ball, motherfuckers! <laughs> <laughs> which we thought was incredibly funny. Um, and, then, and then they came back and they played that same Brendan Byrne Arena with Tom Petty. And the only thing I have to say about that was I got hit by a full beer bottle uh, from a Tom Petty fan. It didn't break, you know. I just had a, a lump on my head. Uh, from a Tom Petty fan who seemed upset that there were like six kids who were really rocking out to the open, opening band that he obviously wanted to be done uh so you can watch tom petty uh but that's that's my only thing about that show i mean what's what's weird i think about that is that like to me in retrospect especially with don't tell us the don't tell soul record like that tour makes sense like to me yeah there's absolutely nothing radically different between what tom petty was doing at that time and what the replacements were doing uh, people just were not open to it, or at least some people were not open to it, you know? Um, well, they also didn't it, try all the time either, as you know, from reading. Yes, yes, yeah, 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 both, I remember both of the shows I saw as being professional, you know? When I think about the 12 shows I got to see before they split in 91, you know, there was one really drunken one, and there was one really awful one, uh, there was one great one, and then the rest of them were just sort of professional, you know. 
um, good to really good at times, and sometimes like they were punching a clock a little bit. You know, I've seen more great Westerberg solo shows okay. uh, than I got to see great replacement shows. So when you um, last saw them in 91, and I know I actually I did ask you this before, but oh. I'm going to ask again. Um, did, like when, when they were on that last tour for uh, All Shook Down, right? right. Um, and especially at that point, Chris Mars isn't drumming. You have uh, the late Steve Foley drumming. Did people know, like, was there a, because to me, when I hear the album, it sounds like, oh, this is their last album. And I don't know if that's maybe just because I know it is, but uh, feeling of yeah. like, oh, yeah, this is it. This is over. Yeah. Did you? Yeah. Um, I'm going to say that while I didn't think it was their last record, I was, so I had my first moment of, I think I'm done seeing them every time they come through. So when they toured in 91 on All Shook Down, they were back to doing one show at the Beacon and then one show at the Ritz. The Ritz at that point, if anybody's interested, was in the old Studio 54. So they moved, oh, wow. from, they moved from the village and they moved up to Studio 54. And that show, at, and, and I remember the Beacon show being a good show, but again, like just not an exciting show, you know? And then the next night was at the Ritz, and I remember being really bored. It was the first time, like four or five songs in, I realized, well, I think they're going to play the same exact set that they played last night. And that's just not something you expected from the replacement. No, not at all. Yeah. You know, and, and they did. They played the same exact show. And there was really a sense of, if I didn't see Paul look at his watch, there was a feeling like he was in his mind. Um, and I walked out of it like, wow, that wasn't a lot of fun. You know, and I, and I liked All Shook Down. You know, I, I was a fan of that record. I did not like Merry Go Round. I remember like that being the first single. I remember hearing that on the radio and I, I remember thinking, this sounds kind of like replacements on autopilot like it sounded like you know but i'd say now like if you if you asked an algorithm to write a replacement song it might you know it might come up with merry-go-round and like that was my feeling at the time but i like other things on that record quite a bit so it wasn't like i was down on that record but there's something about that show that really turned me off and then their last show in new york wound up being opening for elvis costello at at the garden and I was like, well, the replacements were really boring last time I saw them. And Elvis Costello was touring on Mighty Like a Rose, which I thought was a terrible record. He had this big beard. He like, looked like he was in the Grateful Dead all of a sudden. And as a big Elvis Costello fan, I was like, well, I don't want to see that. And the replacements, so I'm going to skip this one. And then the replacements wound up breaking up you know, a couple of months after that. So I did not see their last show. Which okay. no one says was a very good show. Yeah, I mean, it was opening. Yeah. It was at a giant place. Right. They like, were opening up at an arena, and I think they ended with Hoot Nanny, which at that point was an indication that they just didn't give a shit about what they were doing. It was like, okay, yeah, we're done with this. Let's play Hoot Nanny. And, and, right, because yeah. they did that, too, at the very last the show in Chicago. Show. Exactly, exactly. And, yeah. you know, it's so, with All Shook Down, I always thought so. 
that was like that came out right before I became aware of like alternative music, mm-hmm. you know, because it was a year before Nevermind, like right, yeah. almost to the day. Yeah. And it's funny, I know Bob Meir mentions in Trouble Boys, they had, I guess someone at the label, you know, when Tim came out and they were saying, this is too like aggressive for radio. And then how just five years later, you know, they go to submit All Shook Down and they're like, oh, this isn't like what people want to hear on the radio. It's like too soft. Yeah. You know, like they were never, they were never in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. Um. So when you heard they broke up, like, were you like, did you ever think like, oh, they'll get back together? Or were you like, uh, like, or it seems like they didn't even officially, like the way I always heard is like they played that show and people said it was the last one. But like in the beginning, it seemed like, you know, if you watch the interviews of Paul, mm-hmm. like he gets asked about the replacements a lot. Yeah. You know, and uh, when they, and. Yeah. Know, I don't think there was an official, I don't remember there being an official announcement and, you know, at a time when things move much more quickly than they do now. Like the fact that it was only two years later that we had, um, you know, 14 songs. And even before that were the two songs on the single soundtrack. So it's not like we went five years without there being any Paul Westerberg music out there. Right. Um, now we have, but. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think Bash and Pop was 94. At least it seems to me it was like early '94, so it's like all of a sudden there was more replacements-related music out there. Um, but yeah, I don't remember there being a conversation about like, oh wow, my favorite band is is no more. You know, there was just there's just too much going on. You know, there's so much in the ether. You know, between me playing in bands and just there was there was constant new music. And as much as I adored them. The fact that I had to wait two years to hear a new Paul Westerberg song just didn't seem like, you know, that. And I immediately connected with it. You know, I loved uh, Dyslexic Heart, you know. I mean, I, I oh, know yeah. it's, it's, a, it's, mm-hmm. it's a corny song, but I, you know, I loved it, you know. And I remember going to see singles and knowing that he was doing like just the incidental music, you know, right? You know, like someone's walking down the street and all of a sudden you hear these uh, acoustic guitars and I'm like, oh yeah, that's, that's Westerberg. Like, like, you know, like... Oh, I didn't know he worked on the, the score. Yeah, 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 he does, like, you know, they're not songs, you know. It could just be, like, let's take some tracks from Dyslexic Heart and, like, just stick them under this, you know. Like, let's just take the acoustic guitar and the melodica and, like, put it under this scene of Matt Damon walking down the street, you know. But it's it's Westerberg doing the, the you know, incidental music. Which he was, he, Matt... Or was Matt? Is it Matt? Matt Dillon. Matt Dillon. Right? Oh, Dillon. Sorry, yeah, Dillon yeah. was, was probably a baby at that. Yeah, point. Matt. Yeah. Matt Dillon was actually a, a replacements fan from yes. from what I read, and he was at that one award show they played. Ah. The only thing I remember from singles, honestly, is the scene with Tad, where he yeah. Like, oh, yeah. where they call him, and he's like. I don't know. I don't know who you're looking for, lady, but I'm interested or something like that. <laughs> That's like I literally. Remember that. I have not watched it since it was in theaters, but I do remember that. <laughs> that was that was it. Like the soundtrack. That was one of those cases where the soundtrack overshadowed the movie big time. Yeah. Um, so, oh, hey, but so you mentioned the award show. Yeah. I, I will tell my little story that I so I did get to see them the night before, and it was kind of a famous show because. They were doing the award show in New York, and all of a sudden they announced they're going to play Maxwell's. 
in Hoboken oh, the wow. night before. And at that point, they were well beyond playing Maxwell's. I never got, in fact, by the time I ever saw them, they were beyond playing Maxwell. Um, but they announced the show, and I managed to get two tickets to go see them at Maxwell's. And again, it was one of those things where it's like, oh, wait, who is playing drums? So the story is that they told Chris Mars, hey, we booked the show the night before. You need to come in on Friday. And Chris Mars was like, no, my wife and I are on a flight Saturday morning. I'm not changing my flight to play some club the night before for no good reason. Um, and it was definitely a, a bone of contention between them. And so I think one of their roadies, I don't know if it was Bill Sullivan, uh, but maybe it was. I haven't read. Have you guys read Bill's book? I have not read it. No. I, uh, um, I or something like that? I, I do remember hearing the story that it wasn't Chris Mars now. That yeah, like so it was like, okay, some dude is playing drums for them. And... You know, like it should have been more exciting to see my favorite band in a tiny club, but it was, again, a very kind of half-assed, like, well, what are we going to do with this guy on drums who sort of knows, you know, and they did some covers and, you know, they dicked around and they played some songs, but it wasn't, you know, again, it was, it's, not, it's not something I would go, oh my God, like I can tell you guys, yeah, I, I did get to see the replacements at this super tiny club and it was a weird show, um, but musically, nothing much that i remember about it you know so did you uh, watch more them being on tv the next night and how funny it was when they got bleeped and you know and then westerberg did the famous thing where he got the bleeped phrase in at the later end the right right that's what i was gonna ask did you watch it live like oh we... yeah absolutely you know and i've got a vhs tape where i you know i tape the replacements and i was so pissed because the announcer it was a, a, a New York uh, DJ that I believe was this woman named Carol Miller, who was like a classic rock DJ on WNEW in New York. And her intro was something like, we apologize. Yeah. Here's the replacement. And I was like, what the fuck? But it's perfect <laughs> now. Like, like, now. <laughs> and they were great. I mean, that the performance at Talent Show is fantastic. Stick. Yeah, it is. And uh, and the fact that Westenberg gets bleeped and he rolls his eyes because he knows he's getting bleeped and then gets the it's too late to take pills line in at the end. Yeah, it's perfect. But it's perfect and it, and it epitomizes, you know, personifies what I love about him. You Same. Know, that he's, yeah. he's, he's a smart, he's a smart ass. You know, he's a, he's a romantic smart ass. You know, he like, you know, like so many characters that I've been attracted to in my life. You know, I like to think, you know, when I talk about, you know, who's influenced who I am as a person outside of my family and friends, you know, there was watching Alan Alda play Hawkeye Pierce on MASH when I was a kid. There was watching Al Pacino play that lawyer in Injustice for All, you know, all about fighting the system and, you know, this sort of romantic, tough guy against the establishment. And Westerberg fits into that, you know, this sarcastic loner guy who really, he, he wears his heart on his sleeve, 
but he's also reluctant to do it at the same time. Exactly. You yeah. Know, you guys listen to Bob Odenkirk talk about Sorry Ma, have you heard Yeah, that? he like yeah. gets he chokes up. It's really and, endearing. And he nails it. He nails that, you know, he he, you know, I'm not a Midwesterner, but he describes it as a Midwestern trait, which is being embarrassed by your feelings. Is kind of how he describes it. And Westerberg fits that and that's obviously been a big attraction to me that idea like you know you show a lot but then you kind of pull back you know yeah or you know you show something but you you make fun of it at the same time you know yeah. like yeah well, i've had friends it's, say it's to me fear, like but it's not sincere <laughs> yeah I, I had friends say to me too like they're like oh I'm I'm surprised you love them so much because you don't you don't drink and I was like there's so much <laughs> there's so much more to them than just being this like oh they're and, a band and that can got we drunk talk about and, uh, how that stuff is really overplayed and tired agreed uh, you know yeah I I I am not straight edge I've always you know drank but I'm not a big drinker either you know I. I, I am literally, I'm having a rum and coke at 11 o'clock in the morning because I needed to get some Dutch courage to do this interview because I don't do these things. Um, but I'm not a drink. And the, when I would meet people who would say, oh my God, that was such an amazing show. They were so drunk and I was so wasted. I'm like, fuck you. Like, like that's not, you know, that's not what I go to shows looking for. Like, Same. I... I want to, I want to achieve a feeling similar to that via the music and via the camaraderie, but without the drugs and alcohol. Yeah. You know? And I, and I think that's a key thing. Like when I think about great shows that I've gone to, and I don't know, Greg, I mean, so right, you're, you're straight edge and you don't indulge in these things, but I will tell you that what you're feeling at some of these great shows, that sort of euphoric feeling is what a lot of people chase with with drugs and booze. Right. You know, now like, we can't even do that, which is you know. Well, I mean, but I'm saying, but like you're you're getting like like that. Ultimately, that's what people are chasing when they do those things. They they want that feeling of losing yourself in something bigger. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. And that feeling of euphoria from being in a community of like-minded people um and at the best rock shows you get that feeling and i just never and when when people just equate that to like you know oh yeah i had a great time at that show because i was fucked up yeah it irritates me to no end and because we're real music fans you know and and as a replacements fan you know you deal with that all the time you know there was that fan documentary color me obsessed yeah and there's like too much of that in there you know like and it, it, it annoys me and it's like no like that's not what was great about replacement shows you know like it, you know, it could play into it, but there was a point where it just went way over, and like that's not the fun part of it, you know. Yeah. So let's yeah. let's fast forward. So to mm-hmm. 2013, uh-huh. um, they announced that they're playing Riot Fest, um, yeah. and that was like summer. In fact, I remember where I was when I saw the announcement. You'll that you'll find this humorous. I was seeing Scott Reynolds play um, in <laughs> was I on that show. No, I think you'd moved. It was in Jenkintown. 
Mickey, oh. Mickey was there and uh, Ben, okay. uh, you know. Uh, yeah. What was know. that venue, Greg? It was not even a venue. It was, it was a bar. I forget what it was called. Yes, Ben, ben put that together for, for Scott. Ben yes. put together a couple of shows for Scott. Like and I you know, was on my primitive iPhone at this point, and I looked, and I was like, oh, my gosh, the replacements. Now, me, like I said earlier to you, like having super young kids, flying out to Chicago wasn't like on the, in the cards for me. But I kind of had this I feeling did. like, well, they're going to, you know, they're going to do more, which they did. I got lucky and, yeah, and, food and I saw them. But what was your reaction? Did you see that coming at all? Or did I see it coming? No, not at all. And, you know, and it's kind of sad that I think in hindsight, it had to do with him getting divorced. That's what it seems like now. Um, but the second that announcement was made immediately, my friend TJ, who, you know, who bought me the Paul Westerberg guitar and the Chris Sherry drawing of Paul Westerberg that's behind me there. We were immediately on the phone, like, so we're going to riot this, right? You know? <laughs> and I think my sister was living in Chicago at the time. And to do a little bragging, my, my brother-in-law was, he worked for Pitchfork at the time and they had a thing where it's like, okay, hey, Riot Fest guys, we'll give you a bunch of passes to our music festival if you give us a bunch of passes to your music festival. So I'm immediately like, can you get me and TJ into Riot Fest, please, 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 please. And he was gracious enough. And yeah, so I got to see the Chicago show and and two more shows on that tour the 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 Arsenal show and the philly show okay that's the one that's, we saw yeah we were there and yeah it exceeded my um my expectations oh wow that's awesome because you got to see them you know you said like a dozen times yeah, yeah it was well it, and but i'll say this though with diminishing returns with each one uh, like I know lots of people who went to the Philly show who thought it was amazing. And I kind of felt at that point, like Westerberg was doing that ridiculous t-shirt thing. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah it was like one letter for each show, right? right like, he said, one, like Yeah. They, right. He had a letter on the front and a letter on the back. And at a certain point, people were starting to decipher it. Like if you went onto message boards, like here's what he's saying. And by the Philly show it was apparent that it was, Wait, what did it wind up saying? Something like, now I must whore my past. Yeah. Something like I'm sorry. That. It was like, uh, I can't think of it. But right, yeah, was, I know that was part of it. Yeah. Now I must whore my past. And it's like, wow, if you're, if that's what you're feeling, like, you know, like, don't do it, I guess, you know? Yeah, it's, it was a uh, bummer yeah. because I've been waiting for, at that point, like, you know, a decade or something. Mm -hmm to see them and i was just glad it was one of the best shows i've ever seen but i didn't go to they any other really good they right. were really good and you know and it was and it was a fun night you know it was a fun night in philly and there were great opening bands and um but yeah there was something already at that point i was like you know and, and believe me so my brother-in-law who i mentioned before like saw them at a, at a primavera at what was the last show i guess you know and he said, yeah, like it was like almost apparent at that point that like, you know, there was like relief on Westerberg's face that he was done doing this. You know, that I think he has of, a college age kid. He probably. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the reunion shows were great. The Chicago show. 
was exciting in a way that like, you know, where I actually, and again, I thank my friend TJ, who was like, you know, we have to go up front for this. And I was like, you yeah, know, I don't do that anymore, you know? And he's like, no, we're gonna sit through AFI so that we can get a good spot for the replacements. I'm like, oh, <laughs> really, do we have to? So, you know, I was, I was 30 yards back against the middle barrier watching AFI and I apologize Greg I'm assuming they're oh I love AFI in your wheelhouse (laughs) (laughs) but I liked them Uh, since they were like when they they were like a hardcore band when they started you know whatever you know but I know the pain of having to sit through someone you don't like just to get a good spot well at at a festival type yeah yeah you know so it's not fun so so we were up close for AFI so we could have a good spot for the places and I had at that point I think I intentionally, like, I wouldn't look at the set list from the Toronto show. Like, I didn't want to know. And that was tough, you know, because you know, it, it was so easy to find it out. I could have gone on YouTube and just watched their entire set from Toronto at that point. I was like, oh, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. Um, and it was really special, you know, and to see them do, like, my favorite thing and... You know, like songs that I loved. That by the time I was seeing them in '87, they weren't really doing the songs. You know, they were kind of done with that. You know, by by "Don't Tell a Soul," it was pretty rare to get anything prior to "Let It Be." And even "Let It Be," they were doing like you know the hits from "Let It Be." They would do right. "Out There" and they would do "Unsatisfied," but they weren't doing favorite thing. And that was always my song on that record. You know, so for them to bring that back out for that reunion tour. It was, you know, it was special. And to do songs back to the first record, you know, like, and Sorry Ma is a record that I didn't really connect with much the first time around. It wasn't until they did the CD reissues for whatever reason, I was like, you know what? I've been really underrating this record my whole life. This is a really good record. It's In great. my mind, it was like, oh, it's, 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 their, it's their version of punk before they became a, a good band. You know, I was like, no, it's a, it's a great record filled with terrific songs, you know. That's how we felt. We did the, you know, we, when we talked about yeah. Stink. Because mm-hmm. even me approaching it, like, when I got into them all in a lump of stuff, mm-hmm. it was kind of like, okay, well, these are, the, these are the early ones. They became the replacements that, that I know most people know and let it be. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's like, no, they, there was some, I mean, Stink's great. Um, I'm glad they didn't keep putting out records like that. Yeah. And I'm glad that that one exists. So one of the questions that I wanted to ask, you mentioned about Don't Tell a Soul and hearing stuff before it came out. And I know we, we talked about it on the side. What were your thoughts when, when you heard about the box set, Dead Man's Pop, which mm-hmm. we are going to do an episode on on that at some point. Well, yeah, so I mean, I was excited to hear that because I knew the legends, you know, I knew that they had started recording it with one producer and chucked it and that they did it with this other producer, but then he didn't get to mix it, you know, that like it was, and, you know, I could say like, you know, I liked Don't Tell a Soul a lot when it came out. You know, I liked the original version of Don't Tell a Soul. You know, it's got, what I think is the worst replacement song, which is um, We'll Inherit the Earth. You know, Greg and I have talked about this. You know, yeah, I, I love I that believe song. That, I believe that Beach Slang has created their entire career around the idea that We'll Inherit the Earth is the best replacement I can totally song. see that. You know, <laughs> like, oh, dude, it's like you just totally whipped this, you know? Like, 
Like that's a that's a band I should love, and I really dislike them immensely for reasons like for <laughs> folks listening to the Something to Do podcast with. Um, but like, yeah, in my mind, it's like, like, uh, like from the moment I heard it, I was like, are they trying to be you too? I'm like, what the hell is with this particular song? I wonder if that's why I love that song. Cause I'm maybe, like, maybe, yeah. maybe it is by night, you know, as big a fan of you two as I was like in 1984, believe me, I had a fedora and a mullet in my senior year of high school as an absolute tribute <laughs> to Bono. Circa the unforgettable fire, you know. I thought he was, and it's and the black trench coat. You know? That was a raging mullet he had too I, back I, then. Yeah. I, I had it too, buddy. And and I, you know, they were they were a big deal for me, and and a little less with Joshua Tree. But by 1989, I would have been like, what the hell? Does Westerberg think he's, you know, Bono? Like, you know, on that song. That song. Yeah, no, I, I can definitely uh, yeah. Uh, so yes, I was absolutely excited to hear the, you know, unreleased version or the original version of it, especially because Matt Wallace wound up doing uh, 14 songs, which I think is a great record. And it sounds great, you know, I, I, yeah. you know and obviously he's, you know, simple, you know, you know he, he's got a relationship with Westerberg, you know, like they, they connect in that way. I saw him say something, um, Matt Wallace, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong. He's the only producer that worked with him twice. Like uh, maybe in the uh, begin in the beginning yeah. stuff, I guess Steve Fjellstead or however it's pronounced. Right, right. Yeah, back when it was the twin tone guys. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But like yes. after that, it was like, you know, Tommy Ramone, then Jim Dickinson, mm-hmm. then Matt Wallace, then Scott Litt. And then he did this with uh, Matt Wallace again when he did 14 songs. So, yeah, there had to be some relationship. I didn't know when the box set was first announced, I was kind of like, is this the lost mix? And then, of course, you do more research and you realize that he was... Right, there wasn't a mix, you know, like he never finished it at the time. But, you know, what do I care? I get to listen to it now. and And I think it sounds great. I mean, it's a different record. There are songs that I think, like the songs that I loved originally on Don't Tell a Soul, I still love. Uh, I still hate Will Inherit the Earth. Like they don't make it any better on this version. Um, but there are other songs I think are better. I think Asking Me Lies sounds like the Jackson 5 song that Westerberg always wanted it to sound like. You know? I yeah, mean, I can see that definitely. Now, like a pop disco song. Um, that I think he was trying to do back then and they just kind of half-assed it, you know? Um, do you think yeah. that if if it came out with that original mix that like they would have had a different trajectory? Like if it would have been not that sheen, you know, that- I, I try not to think about stuff like that, any, you know? As a guy who likes a lot of melodic indie rock band stuff, we'll call it power pop for lack of a better word, one of the questions that always comes up with those musicians is, oh, why weren't you bigger than you were? Like, you know, you, 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 you make catchy, ostensibly commercial sounding music, you know, you know, why didn't you have a hit? And it's just it's like a sucker's argument. You know, if you listen to what's in the top 40 for the past 20 years, it's not melodic rock music. Like that's not like there's pop, 
in terms of popular, what's literally popular, and then there's pop music in quotes, and, and they don't really cross over very much, right. you know. Um, maybe they did a little in 1989, um, but the fact that they didn't be, it seemed to me they did. Like, I'll Be You was on WNEW FM in New York, you know, it was on the classic rock station. It wasn't on all the time, but it was on, you know, and you'd see the video on an MTV. Uh, and, you know, and it, and it was a real video, you know, it wasn't the, you know, the nonsense that they were doing with Tim and then, you know, please meet me, you know, you know, it was like a proper video. It's not like I was excited to see a proper replacements video, but I was like, oh, hey, they're trying. Like, yeah, like it's yeah, legit. You know? um, but like me thinking like, oh, if only they had done this back then. No, there's, there's no reason to think it would have been any more popular with that mix. Like, and part of me is like, if anything, it might have been less popular. Like, it might not have gotten on yeah, the radio. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Like, it would be more popular to fans. Like, yeah, oh, yeah, they they kept it real or whatever. But yeah, that's that's a good point. So I guess yeah. finally, right, like, why did why did Document blow up and Please to Meet Me not blow up? Like, you know, I don't yeah. know. And, yeah, and and you know, and in, as a guy who obsesses on this stuff, like that's not. A conversation I've had in my head over and over again. Well, I had yeah. other ones like, "Oh my God!" When I found out that "Please to Meet Me" was such a digital recording, and that the guitar tracks, like the first time I heard that, like Westerberg couldn't play any of the songs completely through, and that the guitar tracks are comped, you know, that like Jim Dickinson would take four bars of a verse and then repeat them over and over again because they were the best sound. Like that blew my mind. And that's the stuff that to this day, like I kind of obsess over, you know? Right. Like, yeah. Not really, the what ifs. Right. Right. He like, like they, they never played this live. Like he probably barely got through a take, but it sounds like the most remarkable record, you know? Um, and that's the one I go back and forth on with like, you know, is that their best record? And that's me too. Me my, too. My and, yeah. argument, if someone put a gun to my head, I'd say, yeah, it's, it's pleased to meet me. Sometimes it's Tim. Sometimes it's Let It Be. Um, but, you know, my quick answer would be pleased to meet me. And the fact that it was a digital recording in 1987 that was so heavily processed and, and cut together kind of blows my mind. So yeah. when you think about that, it, you know, it's not like, why wasn't this a bigger hit? It's like, oh, my God. Like, this is the antithesis of what I usually like about rock music. You know, like Neil Young is in Crazy Horse are not comping tracks. You know? No, not at all. <laughs> well, you know, lucky if they play a song twice through before they decide that's what's going on the album, you know, <laughs> versus, you know, yeah, let's just take, you know, these four bars of guitar from IOU and repeat them over and over again because you never played well enough a second time. And to me, please to meet me. Um, I think it's their most solid. There's no, like we, when we did the episode, I said the only song that's kind of like whatever for me is shooting dirty pool. And yeah. even that's like, whatever, it's, it's fine. But yeah. to me, that would have been the one, if they were going to break, that would have been the one, which kind of leads me to my, you know, to wrap up. Now the big news is about the box set, the yeah. please to meet me box set um, that's coming out in October. Um, as you know, like I immediately 
hit the submit button on the Bing. <laughs> you beat me to it. I was yeah. posting on the dead board and Greg had already posted <laughs> on the big, the big bundle. Cause I was like, Oh, they have an official t-shirt, which are impossible to find now. Um, and, and all like, their shirts, by the way, are ugly as sin. <laughs> never done nice merch. The reunion shirts were ugly. The shirts back in the day were ugly. I didn't get a reunion one because I was like, no, nah, I don't like these. So same, shout out to um, Jason, my friend Jason Mazzola. He designed the logo for uh, our podcast mm-hmm. um, for, for something to do. And he's so he's a designer and he is big into collecting t-shirts and old shirts. And wow. he said the same thing. He said, the only good replacements t-shirt is that I spent $18. I spent $18. That one I bought. I bought that at the Beacon Theater when they toured on uh, on Pleased to Meet Me. Yeah. So I think that may have been the only one I bought. Like like the Don't Tell awesome. Us All shirt was the the covered like the the you know the the half out of focus picture of all of them i'm like no that's this is ugly you know the all shook down one i think was just the album cover like you can tell it was not a concern of those guys no nice looking shirts and then the reunion tour shows were ugly too hate us on facebook but yeah so so the (laughs) box set though right right the finger with the facebook thing it's like oh dude Uh. So with with the box set, what what are yeah. your what are you most excited about with that set? You know, I I don't you know there are there are songs on there I've never heard, uh, never heard of even. Like I remember sending away for cassettes of outtakes from Please to Meet Me. Like in the early days of the internet, I'd be on a message board where someone's like. You know, if you want a cassette with P.O. Box and Birthday Gal and like a couple of the songs, you know, send me five bucks for postage and I'll send you a cassette. And so, you know, I mean, I, so I had that stuff even before they did the reissue on CD. Um, so the fact that there's songs in there I've never heard, great. I'm excited to hear that. Uh, and I will dutifully buy it because it's such an important record to me. But I can't say that there's anything I'm super excited about hearing. I mean, the last one with the live record, I was like, oh, so I had had Inconserated. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I tried to buy that. So it was, it was, a, it was a CD EP, right? And, you know, promo only. And I bought a copy and the CD I had just skips straight through. Uh-huh. And then I bought a bootleg seven inch of the CD. So when they announced they were gonna put out that entire show, I was definitely excited to hear that. So the fact that there's nothing live from 87 and they say that they don't have anything, I'm like, I know that there's a soundboard recording of them at the Ritz. Yeah. I know it's not yours, but like you could clean that up and put that out there and it would probably sound pretty good, you know? No, I agree. I was like, you sure? Like I wanted to do the, uh, when, when I saw that, thing that I, I shared with you where it said mm-hmm. there's no soundboard yeah. if, if we were in face to face i would have done the larry david and curve <laughs> you know, looking at him and the music i'd be like i'm sure there's no I other mean, it might be that they literally don't have the original recording but somebody has a soundboard out there you know, right this thing um and also so i i had posted something i guess at some point i started following this guy oh gosh the fact i'm not going to know his name is sad but there's a guy who lives in Wisconsin, I believe, who is in a bunch of pop punk bands. He's related to the, the tenement 
team. They're a big band for me. Uh, and he, oh, he was in the touring version of Bash and Pop when the last Bash and Pop record came out. He's a bass player. He was in Screeching Weasel for a while. Oh, wow. oh um, gosh, it's going to kill me. I don't remember his name, but he, but he has a mastering studio. Like, that's his main gig. And he mastered uh, Dead Man's Pop. And he actually did the mastering of the never released yet live DVD of the replacements reunion show in Minneapolis that was professionally filmed. And he talks about that a little bit, that he did the sound. I think maybe he even did the live sound for it. But anyway, so he's also involved with mastering the Please to Meet Me box. And he said, listen, you know, because it was a digital recording, there's no tapes to go back to. There's no like two track individual, like you can't mm. go back and remix this record. It doesn't exist in that format. Like all we have are mix downs of like DAT tapes, yeah. which cracks me up. You know, the DAT, as a guy who is recording in bands in the late eighties and early nineties, Lord knows I have a, shelf full of dat tapes that i couldn't play <laughs> on anything because that became the hot format for a while you know his name is justin perkins justin perkins thank yeah you very much. i knew hey. the name sounded familiar i forgot he did play with screeching weasel yeah. um but yeah, yeah he and, and he was in another like sort of pop punk band from the minneapolis appleton wisconsin scene of sorts you know um but yeah so he, so he posted that like listen they just aren't any master tapes out there like if you're getting stereo rough mixes it's because that's what we have you know from please to meet me so take you know, it. yeah yeah absolutely i'm excited i'll get it i probably won't get the one with the placemat you know i don't know what i'm gonna do with that because i don't <laughs> think it's i don't think it's gonna right, fit it's not as cool as the actual floor mat that they did with uh with the Maxwell thing, you know, yeah, and sort of the bar mat, you know. Um, I got some of the promotional items with that live at Maxwell's. Mm -hmm. um, shout out again to Siren Records. Blair hooked me up. They had like uh, matchbooks. I think that's probably a good place to, to end. I, I Just like I said with Dean, uh, you know, with Jeff Dean, I could probably keep talking for, forever about this stuff. I didn't even get to my Paul Westerberg model first act guitar. You, <laughs> you guys know the, you guys know the story of the Paul Westerberg model guitar? No, I think we I know that it exists and that's it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. we'll definitely we'll definitely keep this in. This, this so, is, so the story oh goes that he was in a big box store, like a Walmart or a Target, and there was a, a first act guitar on the wall, like you know. You know, buy your kid their first electric guitar, $150 first act model. And he took it down off the wall and he was surprised at how well it played. Like he liked the way it felt. And I don't know if he actually bought it or somehow, but somehow it got back to first act that he liked their guitar. And they reached out to him and said, would you want to do a Paul Westerberg model? And again, we're talking about how you connect with certain people. The fact that his immediate response was like, yes, if there's going to be a Paul Westerberg model guitar. It's going to be a first act. Guitar. It's going to be a first act $170 guitar that you're going to be able to buy at 
you know, Target or whatever, Target, yeah. Walmart, that's going to be the guitar. And I loved that that was it. And I didn't get it at the time, but for my 50th birthday, my friend TJ got me the Paul Westerberg first act guitar. That's, That's awesome. awesome. And after I got it set up, because Lord knows I couldn't play it out of the box. <laughs> I have all sorts of issues. Uh, but once I got it properly set up, it's act, it is. It's a it's the best hundred and eighty dollar guitar. And now what do they go for if you look on eBay? No, I, I don't I didn't look because like I said, he bought it for me two years ago and I, I was like, Oh, I think he didn't spend a fortune on this. It's I'll look, nice. but I won't tell you. Right. It's pretty <laughs> nice that he did this, you know, but I hope he didn't spend a small fortune on it, you know. Uh I don't think he did. Uh that said, uh I don't know what they go for. Because again, it's Paul Westerberg. You know, what's the collector's market for a Paul Westerberg guitar? Right. Maybe that hundred and eighty maybe he paid three hundred dollars for it. Like I I don't know. Or maybe he bought it off a guy who's like, I got this for my kid and he no longer plays the guitar. Yeah. Like, you know, the guy he bought it from probably has no idea even who Paul Westerberg is. Right. He was just right. like, Oh, it's a cheap yeah. guitar. It's a cheap guitar. This thing's been sitting guitar. in my basement for fifteen years. Can I just get exactly. rid of it? My my son now plays, you know, you know, I don't know. Now it's a drum machine or he just plays Fortnite all day. So right. so here you go. You know, uh, I'll put this online. So, so don't I'll, get me started on Fortnite. I could, do a, <laughs> I could do a separate podcast just about my hatred of Fortnite. Frank, <laughs> any comfort, I will tell you, it gets better. My son is 15 now. He went through his Fortnite phase. Now it now it's all chess videos. So let's let's hope it, 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 it you know. It's gonna happen for you. They they all change. They change. You know. My youngest, Alex, he just he came out. He heard. You heard Fortnite. Like, I, he goes, I don't play Fortnite. I play Minecraft. Uh, oh, see, right. He's back on Minecraft because he's fondly remembering when he was nine years old. Yeah. Like, nostalgic. Yeah, kids are like that, right? You know, they they become nostalgic for what they liked when they were nine, when they're twelve, as opposed to oh, ten. Yeah. Which these ten? Right. Remember when we used to play Minecraft? Let's play that now. You know? Yeah, like me getting a Paul Westerberg guitar. Right, turned fifty. That's true. That's you know, I tr- uh, I try like, to. Remember? Although you know, I've never stopped listening to the replacements. I, right. I, I will. I will gladly say you know, it's not like you know. I had my Kiss phase. I know they're a big thing for you, Greg. You know. Oh yeah. I was. I was. You know. I was eight when Alive came out, and I loved it. And then I turned fourteen. And I was like, I can't listen to this anymore. And then I bought all my Kiss records back. Probably. Let's give. Let's give the replacements some credit. 1984. I listened to Let It Be. And Black there's Diamond. A cover, there's a cover of Black Diamond. And I remember reading Robert Christgau's review, and he talks about Black Diamond. And he says something like, you know, they're not a, you know, like, I don't know if he was generalizing about musicians or specifically about the replacements. He goes, there's not cool stuff and uncool stuff. There's just what you like. And that spoke to me again as a 15-year-old who had 16, who had tossed out all his Kiss records because Kiss weren't cool, you know, like, you know, I didn't listen to that anymore. And to have a band that, you know, was very indie, you know, you know, who most people in my high school had no clue who they were, 
to, to put a kiss cover on their record and not ostensibly making fun of it, you know? Yeah. Like their cover of Black Diamond isn't a goof on Black Diamond, you know? It's not like Nirvana doing Do You Love Me, right? Right, <laughs> you know, even that's not as much of a goof, I think, as they want you to think, because they yeah, definitely. But but they were they yeah. were chicken shit. They did they hit it in it being a goof, right? Know? And replacements didn't do that, right? Right. They yeah. just play Black Diamond, and then when they got to the tough part, they just went blam and they ended it. You know, like you know, they weren't going to do the long end. <laughs> uh, but that was a big thing. You know, it's like, oh, okay, it's okay to like all that stuff. And that's a huge thing because I'm also a big movie guy and people love to talk about like guilty pleasures. And, and I hate that concept, you know, and that goes back to the replacements being like, you know, we're going to do a kiss song because we really like this kiss song. Yeah, and it's yeah. not about, it's a goof. It's not about, can you believe that we liked this stuff when we were kids? It's like, no, this is a great song and we're going to do it. Yeah, for a band that did so much stuff like deliberately tongue in cheek, it's like a really awesome yeah. cover. That's but, but even like, and I remember when I started listening to the, like their bootlegs, and in 1985 and 1986, they covered a lot of what I listened to on AM radio as a kid in the 70s. You know, they would do Love Beat, you know, Heartbeat, It's a Love Beat by the DeFranco thing, or they would do Hitchin' a Ride. And I'm like, well, these are like silly songs that I used to listen to sitting down in the backseat of my parents' car when I was growing up. And I would never think like, you know, there was any value to this. It was just crap that was on the radio when I was a kid. And their placements were doing them and they were rocking them out and like bringing to the center that these are great songs at their heart. They're great pop songs, you know? So yeah, I don't, you know, I don't buy that guilty pleasure thing. If I want to listen to the Partridge family on occasion, you know, I'm not going to argue that they're, that there's some unsung great band, but there's six or seven terrific songs in there. Yeah, know? absolutely. I yeah. probably did three of them, you know, <laughs> at some point. Uh, so credit them for that too. Uh, uh, and Kiss for that matter. I'm, I'm glad we got around to Kiss, Greg. I, I, you know, <laughs> I didn't include them in my notes, but I was like, you know, Greg and They're, I should tie Kiss into the replacements. Thing. And I, th I think that's good. And I think that's a, like I said, a good place to, to wrap up. Sure. Um, so thanks so much for coming on and everything. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, this was a lot of fun. You know, I hope you could manage to get a half an hour worth of interesting stuff out of it. Oh, no, we got, got tons uh, of interesting stuff. Yeah. And I'm really excited. I, like I said, I listen to the podcast all the time. And Thank you so much. I really like it. And it's fun because, like I said, you know, I come from this. You guys come from it from hardcore. And, you know, I come from it from pop and eventually found my way to some hardcore. Now, hardcore is not my thing, ostensibly. Um, but we can all agree on, on the greatness. That's it for this week, folks. Thanks for listening. We're looking forward to you joining us on our future explorations of this essential Midwestern punk. For episode nine, we'll be talking about an album that's super important to me, uh, Husker Du's New Day Rising. From the year 1985 on SST Records, that is going to be one that I am uh, 
going to really enjoy. Um, yeah. Should be fun. Hopefully you all will enjoy it too. Uh, we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Take care, folks. All right, man. Cool. Now I can charge the computer. Nice.